you get tiny homes in there and it disrupts. It's a disruptor to that whole market because literally, I think if we were like, hey guys, we have a hundred homeowners that want to do it in their backyard, we could absolutely get probably a hundred tiny homes, you know, built within a few months. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waltman, and this is episode 150 with Lindsay Wood. Lindsay Wood is an evangelist for tiny living, and these days she's as busy as ever. As the pandemic has put economic pressure on a large swath of the country, tiny houses are being increasingly seen as a solution to housing unaffordability and inequality. But there are some big legal hurdles to get over before we can get there. And in this interview, Lindsay helps us explore them and learn about what's happening. Stick around. Did you know that I personally send a tiny house newsletter every week on Tuesdays? It's called Tiny Tuesdays, and it's a weekly email with tiny house news, interviews, photos, and resources. It's free to subscribe, and I even share sneak peeks of things that are coming up, ask for feedback about upcoming podcast guests, and more. It's really the best place to keep a pulse on what I'm doing in the tiny house space and also stay informed about what's going on in the tiny house movement. To sign up, go to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. I'll never send you spam, and if you don't want to receive emails, it's easy to unsubscribe. I hope you enjoy next week's Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. Go to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter to subscribe. All right, I am here with Lindsay Wood. Lindsay Wood, the tiny home lady, is the founder and CEO of Experience Tiny Homes, helping people dreaming of going tiny overcome the hundreds of choices to make their dream tiny home a reality. After their own tiny home builder went bust in the middle of their custom tiny home build, Lindsay created innovative strategies to change the way tiny homes are designed and purchased. Lindsay now dedicates her life to helping people follow their dreams of living tiny, specializing in tiny home design, material and appliance selection, and builder analysis. Lindsay is on the board of the Tiny Home Industry Association, focused on legalizing tiny homes across the U.S., as well as creating new standards for tiny homes. Lindsay Wood, welcome back to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Thank you, Ethan. It's great to be here. Love, love what you do out there. I follow your podcast and listen to it often. Thank you. Yeah. And I love what you do. Um, Tiny Home Industry Association has just really been moving and shaking in the last year or two. And I know you're, you're really involved with what they do. So thank you for that work as well. Absolutely. It's been great to connect to all the builders out there and also people that are really passionate about advocating for legalizing tiny homes. Yeah. So um, you reached out to me about a month or so ago and said, hey, have you done a podcast episode about tiny houses as a solution for COVID evictions? And I said, no, how about, how about you? Um, <laughs> so, you know, let's just start there. You know, we're talking on January 26th, 2021. Um, you know, what, what's the current state of things? And, um, you know, how, how connected to this problem are you in the tiny house movement? Thank you. Yeah. So of course, when I was seeing all the moratorium, you know, I, I feel very housing secure because we have a tiny home. And we also have the ability to stay in my parents' house every winter when they travel elsewhere. So we are in that 
nomadic reality um, that we've got options. But for other people, um, namely a friend of mine out in the East Coast is, is very much looking daily and trying to figure out his best way to stay in his home for him and his family. Because he is one of those people where he actually got COVID and he's in a situation where his industry just, you know, lost a lot of revenue and he wasn't able to make up, you know, the rent payments. And now he's facing eviction. So the moratoriums on the evictions are really critical in keeping people in their houses. One other piece of this, you know, when it all started, you know, all of us were like, okay, March of last year, we're almost a year into this, that, you know, of course there'd be moratoriums, you know, for a few months. Well, now we're just in that rolling, you know, things are starting to expire and then they get extended and then they expire and then they get extended. Like right now, as this recording, we are January 26th and the CDC is supposed to have the expiration on the 30th. Like we're talking in a matter of days. And if you're one of those people that could potentially be evicted without that moratorium or any kind of safeguard, you're hoping that gets extended, right? And that's really something right now President Biden has pushed for. But once again, does that mean it's going to come? Right, right. And so I guess I had never really thought about this. Like I, I knew that there had been a moratorium on evictions and I kind of assumed that that was evictions due to inability to pay rent, um, you know, because so many people have lost their sources of income because of the pandemic. But does that also apply to, for example, someone living in a tiny house in a backyard that gets flagged by the zoning administrator? Like, are those probably different, okay. you know, because once again, that definitely falls into that realm. And I love how much you've covered this, you know, angle of it. Like, obviously, a big reason why the Tiny Home Industry Association is so focused on legalizing around the country. I mean, at this moment, I mean, a year ago, we didn't during COVID time. We had the city of San Diego, county of Santa Clara, city of San Jose and Humboldt County all amend and approve their tiny homes and backyards. Now, that's not like tiny home villages and cottage industry, what we call tiny home zones. That's, that's the next frontier. But it's at least a step in the right direction for people that want to live legally. Now they have so many more options. Of course, they've got to find and connect with a single family home. But back to this COVID moratorium reality, you know, state by state, it's different. Like state of California has extended, but other states don't. And then they fall to the CDC because now they can go to more of a federal support. But then that is even, you know, it, and I've also heard where landlords are being able to like kind of maneuver their ways around it. I mean, you know, I have, a, I have compassion for the people that have mortgages on their property and the banks aren't really saying, sorry, you don't have to pay your mortgage this month because of what's going on. So we're all connected. And yet it's the renter at the end of the day that gets told to leave. Yeah. And that's, yeah. The, those are usually the people who are, you know, most vulnerable. Um, Absolutely. Housing insecure. And that taps into the people that are living under the radar is what I call, you know, the ones in backyards that aren't necessarily legal. I've done pretty much only living under the radar with our tiny home. So I don't know any different, but we were, the reason why we ended up having to go home is that we were told to leave because they were going to put the house on the market. That was all right before COVID. So we ended up leaving and they never ended up putting the house on the market. 
these things happen, you know, when you do not own the property and you don't have a permit to say you can be there. Right. Yeah. So there's work to do on all angles. However, given that that's happening, one of the solutions I'm looking at is being the person that creates that kind of housing. You know, looking at specifically San Diego, because that's where we're going to move in the summer. The city of San Diego has approved illegalized tiny homes and backyards. As a real estate investor, this is what I've done for the last five years, bought homes, flipped them, put them back on the market. I no longer want to do that without, you know, some component of affordable housing. Um, you know, I, I realize I, I'm, I'm raised in a capitalistic world. <laughs> I have a green MBA, though. So I like I like the mix of being able to be providing home and affordable housing at the same time. So the model would look like this. You buy a single family home, you put the tiny home in the backyard, and you put, a, instead of the garage, you transform it into a junior accessory dwelling unit or the master bedroom. Depends on the house. And now what you have is a tiny home micro village. You know, you've got the ability for either the homeowner to live in the main home, rent out the two other spaces, or it could be multi-generational. And now what we've done is actually brought on more affordable housing by the nature of it being small. It will be lower rent and it'll be brand new. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. Right. And then you're, you know, for the, maybe not the first time, but you're, you're offering nice new housing to low income folks rather than the kind of dregs and whatever is the cheapest. Pretty much. Yeah. Because people like, this is what I can afford. And now they have to go out based on their budget to what they can afford. Mm -hmm. And that's largely, I've lived in Marin County. There's a lot of, you know, under the radar in-law, you know, backyard cottages, you name it, kind of thrown together because no one's checking. Um, But with a tiny home, all of it's being built brand new. So you've got the ability to really have someone live in a quality home doesn't, you know, there's all different levels, of course, within the tiny home world, as you know, different material selections, you name it. I would personally be looking at something in the probably $70,000 range that would fit more of the market that I'm going to be purchasing it. But the notion that in addition to that, the person now buying the home can see that as an investment property that they get to live in. And, and, and I'm seeing what they call cap rates or interest rates of, of well beyond 10%, which is something you really, even in a really good stock market, I know that's going on right now. Um, a lot of people don't want to play the stock market and they really believe strongly in real, real estate. Right. Right. And, and from what I've read, it sounds like, you know, real estate has been booming during the pandemic and it is probably going to continue, which, you know, is great if you are able to own real estate, but again, it's, kind of demonstrating how the pandemic has exacerbated inequality and, you know, the, those who have are kind of, you know, we're working from home. It's great. We're living our best life. But, um, you know, the entire group of people who have either lost their jobs or have to go to work every day, um, and risk their lives are, are often not able to kind of take advantage and cash in on the real estate boom. So I'm curious you know, given that inequality, you know, how do you see tiny houses, you know, as a solution in the short term? Like what's, what's happening to put, you know, people to connect people to tiny houses? Yeah. Yeah. So really awesome question because 
I'm with I'm with so many people out there, you know, they want home ownership. I've been doing a deep dive in market research. There was about in in a, a recent Facebook group, Tiny House Concept, uh, Renee from Tiny Fest put out one comment. She said, I want to live in a tiny home because dot 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 fill in the blank. Over 700 people respond to that comment. Well, I started doing little tick marks of like, what were the things that they said? And I started, you know, looking at the motivators and financials up there, but simplification of your life is the highest, like by far sustainability is in there, travel, having more experience, you know, keeping your home clean, cleaner is easier type of thing. Um, But the one thing people also want is ownership of the property below them, right? Because when you own that, that's when you own real housing security, right? Not just the tiny home on top of it. And so I recently heard of, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like, it is kind of paradoxical because like you, you know, you could own your own tiny home and achieve that dream of home ownership, but unless you own the land under it, you're still just a renter. So true. Yes. And I, you know, I was excited, at least it's a step in the right direction. So I will say that like, Hey, I was making, I was spending $1,500 a month in a little in-law unit for 500 square feet in Marin, uh, San Rafael, California. And then now all of a sudden we were able to, with family money, be able to purchase the tiny home. So then all of a sudden we were paying, I mean, awesome that we were able to pay $500. Of course, you know, that, that ended, but 500 was amazing. So that was like $1,000 in our pocket, or it was another $1,000 I didn't have to spend and I could launch this business. I mean, there's a reason why I'm even able to do this. And that's because I've gone tiny, you know, to be able to do a business, it it takes a lot of, you know, input of resource and time and money early on, but it's because I ditched the, you know, the large monthly rent. And of course, my life's a little bit interesting and unique right now, like most people in COVID time. But I will share one new legislation, and I can't remember the AB, but it's related to California, that there's a law where if a nonprofit builds the home, as well as has the tiny home, there's a way that you can separate the property and the person with the tiny home or the ADU could actually own the land under it. I mean, that kind of opened my eyes big time because now you're sitting there owning you know, your smaller footprint part of your land, not the entire property. So, you know, maybe that's the kind of legislation where like, well, if it's only a nonprofit, how can I take advantage? All those other things. But it at least is a sign in the right direction that people are thinking of how can we really actually tap into, you know, zoning, all those type of laws that we need to start making and affecting change so that people can actually own the land under them and not be worried about being told you got to go because now we've made choices in our lives that no longer involve you in this cute little adorable tiny house. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it sounds like there are some solutions that, you know, involve real estate. Well, actually I'll say there are solutions that involve individual homeowners kind of offering up their yard and potentially maybe splitting their yard and selling a piece of it to a tiny home dweller. But what is the role? I'm curious. I want to talk about two different groups. Like what's the role of the real estate developer in this? And then I also want to get to what's the role and what's happening with, with state and local government. 
Oh, yeah. And I can definitely speak from a California perspective just because I am here and I've been steeping in it. Um, and obviously, it's where a lot of ordinances are, are being written. For anyone listening that is like, well, I don't live in California. How does that help me? The awesome part, and, and Dan Fitzpatrick, president of the T Tiny Home Industry Association and who we call godfather of legalizing tiny homes, um, you know, really speaks to the fact that government loves to model after other government. So if there's ordinances been written, it took three years for LA to approve something. And a city that size is almost like the equivalent to a state population elsewhere in the country. So if they've done it and they've dotted their I's and crossed their T's, look at their ordinance language. All this ordinance language is available for anyone to look online because it's all part of the public domain. Yeah. So someone else, somewhere else can also tap into that. Um, but when it comes to affordable housing, let me go share a little bit of what Dan really talks about in his overall presentation. Traditionally, at least the way it happens here in California, because we are an expensive place to live, um, $480,000 per door is what it costs a city or a county to build affordable housing. Let me just say that number again, $480,000. And that just brings it up so that the developer will say yes to building there. Because the developer, if they're going to be renting or building this whole thing, putting all this money in, the last thing they're going to do is say yes to something that's going to receive lower rent. Right. They want to make money. They want to make money. They're in it. They're 100% capitalism is alive and well in that world. So now the state of California is like, we need more housing. Okay, great. Uh, county and city will help subsidize. Oh my God, $480,000. You and I could do the math, Ethan. How many tiny homes is that? Like five. I mean, at on least. a DIY level, you know, it, it's probably close to 10. On a yeah. custom tiny home, it could be five. I mean, anywhere from five to 10 homes yeah. that now someone can live in. You know, in addition to that, affordable housing took years to bring about, right? They don't just happen overnight. And meanwhile, the need is now. The need was yesterday. Right. So those are some of the interesting things with tiny homes. There's no taxpayer dollars needed, you know, but the reality is, and this is where Dan really kind of put a, I don't know what organization was telling you. I think he tells it to everyone, every elected official that is considering doing this. What he says is take a portion of that money that you would have spent on affordable housing and do a massive campaign, you know, in Dan's words, send leaflets from the sky and letting people know that they now can put Tiny homes on wheels, you know, well under a hundred thousand because ADUs on foundation, the accessory dwelling units are way more expensive than that. They're into the like 150, 200, you know, 300 or more. Yeah. And they'll take longer. Yeah. And, you know, just speaking about, you know, Burlington, Vermont, the city where I'm from, I've spoken to planners. They want to do tiny houses, but you run into, this is a city on a lake and the lake is polluted. And so there's, there's water, there's stormwater runoff issues. There's lot coverage issues. It's a tiny old city that was not planned for modern cars. So there's no, par there's parking issues. And it's just like what starts as this kind of pie in the sky. Of course, this is an empty backyard. Let's stick a tiny house in there. Right. Right. It becomes this bureaucratic nightmare. And I'm, I'm curious, like, I know California is is absolutely notorious for being the most bureaucratic nightmare of all. Yes, true. <laughs> so how are cities like San Diego 
making it so that sure you get your $60,000 tiny house on wheels, but then by the time you're done running door lines to it and like burying power and paving the lot and like making sure there's a parking spot, you've you've spent another $70,000 on the parking spot. Hopefully not that much. What I have heard at the most is about 20. And that included a concrete pad for the tiny house. The good news is, and of course, that always comes back to every, you have to look at jurisdiction you're in. But my understanding from what I've been seeing is that there's different materials because the biggest expense, there's two big expenses to that, is the concrete you're going to use. Or, and one of the solutions to that is using a gravel bed. You know, you dig out the ground below, you put in rock bed, yep. and now you've got a permeation. You know, I'm really big on let's not put concrete everywhere. You know, the song, pave paradise, put up a parking lot. So let's not do that. Let's put in pavers. Let's put in, you know, gravel right. bed under the areas that are just touching for the tires. Mm-hmm. You don't need the whole pad because most of the tiny home is not touching that pad. It's only the wheels and the, and the stabilizers. Right. Right. Or blocks if you put it up on blocks. So then the other big expense is sewer laterals. So if you've got a property that, you know, there's one in San Luis Obispo where the home was higher than where the tiny home was going to be, they needed to put in probably like a couple thousand dollars of a pump that was going to take the sewer and bring it back up to the street level. Right. It really depends property by property. But you can, I've heard where it's possible. So anywhere from like three to 5,000. So now if your home is like, 70, 75, you add three to five, maybe all the way up to 20 if you're doing the full concrete, full tilt boogie. Right, right. So it's still doable. And the lot, you know, I'm hearing that San Diego is actually being really amenable to even setbacks and putting houses right on property lines. Mm -hmm. You do need it only 10 feet away from the actual house. That's not that much. Um, I'm seeing a lot of opportunity down there. I am seeing though that there is a certain need to crane a home if it has to come on the chassis. Right. So there are other companies like Wilderwise who's doing some unique things and being able to be modular. Um, but there's still the crane that, you know, right. costs somewhere in the three to $5,000 to crane it over a home. Totally. Today's episode is sponsored by Precision Temp. Let's face it. Most tiny house dwellers want their homes to be small, but not uncomfortable. That means reliable, unlimited hot water. Precision Temp's propane-fired hot water heaters reliably provide unlimited hot water, and they're specifically designed with tiny homes in mind. In fact, the NSP 550 model was installed in my own tiny home, and the reason I chose it was because it did not require a large hole in the side of my home like other RV hot water heaters. Instead, it mounts discreetly through the floor of the tiny house and works quietly and reliably. With their patented Very Flame technology, These are the only gas-fired tankless water heaters approved by RVIA and are ANS certified. Features such as cold weather and wind protection, precise electronic temperature control, and onboard diagnostics are standard. With higher efficiency and 55,000 BTUs of power, these units produce far more hot water than traditional water heaters. And since they don't come on unless you want hot water or to protect against freezing, you may find that you use as little as half the propane or natural gas as before. So go ahead and take that long, hot shower. Precision Temp is offering listeners of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast $100 off plus free shipping using the coupon code THLP. 
head over to precisiontemp.com and use the coupon code THLP for $100 off any order plus free shipping. That website again is precisiontemp.com, coupon code THLP. Thank you so much to Precision Temp for sponsoring our show. Yeah, and you know, there are so many innovations that are happening. I just had um, Dan Ott from True North Tiny Homes up in Ontario, and, and he's developed a tiny house that actually comes right off of the trailer. It's a custom trailer that's in the house oh. just, you know, you, you jack the house up, you slide the trailer out, and then you put the house down on a slab or something. And, right. you know, when we're talking about parking a tiny house in the, in the backyard of a single family home, you know, that for everyone is hoping that's going to be a permanent thing. So then you start to say, well, why do we, why do we need the trailer at all? Right. Yep, absolutely. And there is um, back porch homes. They were working on some way of putting it on a trailer, but then once they mounted it, they were using these, you know, tie downs in such a way that then now it would be considered a home that could be, you know, it gets into this whole thing. Like when you build a home on foundation, you build to a California building code or whatever state building code you're dealing with, state and local building code. When you build it on a chassis, it falls into either manufactured home or RV park model um, or even like NFPA. But most people are doing the RV ANSI park model version. Um, because those are what cities are actually, you know, approving and permitting. Got it. Yeah. So before we started rolling, you you said something that caught my attention that I wanted to make sure to ask you about, which is you started saying, I want to talk about traditional affordable housing versus tiny house affordable housing. What did you mean by that? Right. And that, there's a, it's a thing now. Well, because this comes back to, once again, I think my mind's still trying to wrap my head around the fact that so much money is spent by taxpayer dollars to bring affordable housing to fruition. There's a whole system behind it. There's contractors and the you know elected officials that are that are needing it because here in the state of California, there is major demand for affordable housing and there's mandate. City by city, county by county, they check every year. Well, what was your affordable housing? You know, how did you achieve that? And most of them are always falling way under their projected numbers. So now it's about getting, you know, recognition of the tiny home as that affordable housing and being able to check off that box for that city or county. Right. But we go back to, to the traditionally, it's just the way it's done. They, you know, X, XYZ developer will get the, you know, the ability to go forward and they get all this chunk of money so that they're able to make up the difference of what it costs to build for normal market housing. And what it costs to build or what they're not going to get when they do affordable housing. It's all still apartment buildings. It's all still, it's just who is able to get it under the HUD housing reality. And so you get tiny homes in there and it disrupts. It's a disruptor to that whole market because literally, I think if we were like, hey guys, we have a hundred homeowners that want to do it in their backyard, we could absolutely get probably a hundred tiny homes with, you know, of who you know and who I know, uh, you know, built within a few months. Done. Like that. Yeah. And now the people are owning them. They have home ownership. You know, they're not just a renter. Because same thing. People are also still renters in the places that are even dubbed affordable houses. Right. Right. So that makes me kind of wonder, how do you see this scaling? Because like, 
you know, we can talk about one one backyard at a time or maybe like a hundred houses in a city, but how does this scale and get, yeah. you know, big enough to meet the the growing demand? And and just to dip back into just a, there was something I thought about I want to connect infill housing. You know, kind of the, the reality of like California versus Vermont, you know, beautiful rolling area. I love Vermont, like so beautiful. Um, friends, uh, family, friends in Waitsfield. And so Mad River Glen. <laughs> and so we have the, uh, you know, the California very densely populated and no desire for a big sprawl to happen, right? So now we already have existing roads, existing schools, existing public transportation populating. We got to put people somewhere. You know, it is growing. And if it's not growing, we're seeing the tent cities on the sides of the freeways growing. So something's growing, population's growing. And so that's where I think this, this scaling effect, if the city officials and elected officials, both county and city, we got Santa Clara and Humboldt are the two counties that said yes. Those are no light tasks because you got a wide, vast, you know, area from, you know, in Santa Clara, they got from the coastline, you know, mm-hmm. to the mountain range. They got to cover a lot of territory. Same with Humboldt. Right, right. And they did it. Same with the cities have done it because they know they've got to figure out a way to get people housed yeah, in a way that's going to be effective and fast. And so I look to these ordinances and say, well, they're already done. Do a lot of homeowners even know that that's there? There was some coverage. Absolutely. There was coverage uh, you know, on CBS and, but you have to do it repeatedly. Right. Right. You hear it one time and then out it goes. But now we're a year, almost a year into COVID. There may be a family out there that's like, what do we do? Right. You know, grandma's in this, um, you know, housing facility that she can get around. And as long as there's no crazy steps and, you know, she can make her own food, she could be in the backyard or she could be in the junior accessory dwelling unit. We could be in the backyard and give someone else our home and let, and we'll go travel, you know, when we all can. Yeah. <laughs> Flexibility is, I feel like the, the word. Flexibility and options are like the two big words that tiny homes bring to all environments around there. Now you got Vermont, you know better more about like, how can, how is it possible? It's likely that they're going to say, well, if we have all these homes here, we need to figure out the roads. We need to figure out infrastructure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because it doesn't seem to be a problem for, for moneyed investor, real estate investors to put up, you know, like giant housing projects in the city. Yeah. And they, they, include affordable housing and I'm, I'm giving air quotes here, but it's kind of not really affordable housing. Well, you see, after we've just shared 480,000, I'm going to keep saying that dang number. (laughs) And that may be different state to state, but someone somewhere is paying for that. And guess what? Guess who's paying for that? We are. Yeah, we all are paying. And I know I might sound, I don't know, one way, blue, red, blah, blah, blah. I'm like purple people. Like we both get to win. We all get to win. There's still going to be affordable housing complexes being built. Yeah. But there can also be the tiny homes and backyards for multi-generational purposes, for purposes of, you know, people needing to make more investment on their property, you know, flexibility and options. That's yep. what we're we've been given. Yep. And and as a real estate investor slash tiny home expert, what a unique way to blend those two worlds. And that's what I really feel is my next like, well, who else is doing this? People are still going to do the house flip. Right. There's plenty of flippers out there still doing that model. I'm like, but who's doing the flip 
with the tiny home and the junior at the same time. Right. Because here's the interesting part about the junior. By saying I'm going to do a junior, that literally is transforming the garage into a home where it just has an efficiency kitchen yep. and no bathroom in it means that that homeowner will always have to live in that home. That investment investors cannot own that housing, that we can actually create affordable housing in perpetuity by just putting a junior accessory dwelling unit in that house. So where the junior dwellers basically use the bathroom in the main house? True. There's there's a shared bathroom. And I had in my mind, well, well let's put a bathroom in the junior because that way everyone can be private. And someone made a, a real estate agent, I think it was Lenski Realty, made a, no, a, an appraiser really made a good point that if you put something like a bathroom in there, now they can meet all their needs. And if you do that, then in a way, I think more investors could live. My understanding about the junior accessory dwelling unit laws or ordinance is that once you have that permitted and likely it is a shared bathroom, this is some of the details I have to figure out because I do think it'd be nice to have your own bathroom, but you know, maybe, maybe toilet and, and sink. I don't know, you know, something that you can do separate, but you can't do the showering thing. But that basically makes that home forever have to have the owner live in one of the three units. Right. And that creates, you know, more affordable. Now, if we get some more opportunity where people can, you know, do that separation and the tiny homeowner, you know, that's separated from the house can now own their own little slice of that property. Right. That's the next game changer. <laughs> now we're talking true ownership. I think that that, you know, one thing that a lot of cities are kind of trying to combat is, you know, investors coming in, buying single family homes or apartments, and then putting them on Airbnb where they can earn a huge rate of return. And, yes. you know, this in a way, helps to prevent that also from happening and to, you know, to kind of ensure that this isn't going to just become a a glorified hotel room. It's going to actually add to the housing stock. Absolutely. In fact, the way the ordinances are largely written is that the junior or the tiny home as the ADU cannot be a short-term living experience. So that is in the ordinance additionally. Do people get around that? Would people, you know, do something about you? Sure. But the ownership of the fact that an investor can't own that property. If I just put a tiny home in the backyard and didn't do the junior, I could turn around and be a real estate investor owner and just be a landlord all day long. That's why I feel it'd be so great to do the junior to make sure that property stays as an ownership type of property. Right. So say somebody's listening to this and they are either facing eviction themselves or somebody's listening and says, you know, I want to get involved. How do I connect, you know, evicted people with tiny houses? What do you know of any efforts that are underway in that, in that regard? You know what? I don't know. know, What I can offer is definitely a 20 minute call with me and we'll figure it out together, you know, because ultimately people still, you know, they may still be having income. They may still be having unemployment, but not enough to pay Mm -hmm. the rent that was once there. Are they interested in going tiny? That's a really important thing. I realize tiny homes aren't for everyone, but those that are listening to this channel most likely are intrigued and interested in tiny homes. So if you're on that path, you know, there's a dream tiny home waiting for you. And so what is, what is Thea doing around this? 
So right now, based off the wonderful success we've had in California, I know Dan is currently working in a number of different state levels. You know, we're talking state level. There's one in the Midwest, um, I think north of you, Maine, and even in Florida. They're actually looking at doing a unique thing where within the Department of Motor Vehicle, they're going to have their own category within tiny houses. So every, you know, every state jurisdiction sort of attracted in different ways. But Dan has been amazingly working at this. You know, he's doing this volunteer. Like in his retirement years, Dan has chosen to say yes wow. to doing this type of work. Okay, people. So I want everyone to know that. Big shout out to the advocacy that, you know, he's leading for me is like, well, what do I want to do when I'm retired? Like, I'm not quite there yet, but... <laughs> You know, he's taking all of his knowledge as a county administrator officer of the county of Fresno, city manager in Las Vegas, and he's already written a bunch of these ordinances all over California. Every one of the ones in California has been rewritten. We're working with our local Mendocino County. I'm in Mendocino County, and we're just south of Humboldt County that just approved it. And, you know, the fact that they already approved it makes you know, we just now have a meeting tomorrow to chat with her and we'll see where that goes. Nice. So we're not stopping. Well, that's, that's awesome. So, and, and when we say Dan, we're saying, we're talking about Dan Fitzpatrick from Tiny Home yes. Industry Association and, you know, plug to them. You know, I, I believe if you're, if you're interested in this at all, I think membership is just 25 bucks. And that's true. And whenever anyone applies for that or gets that, yeah. they get three advocacy trainings as part of that. Yes. And there's like three 45 minute trainings. You get Dan's knowledge of how to talk to your elected officials right then and there. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, I was going to say that those trainings are awesome, invaluable. And so, you know, if you are a homeowner, if you are, you know, looking to move into a tiny house and you're kind of wondering, how do I do this kind of advocacy? I definitely. Um, do recommend Thea. And people may, you know, you may be in a situation where you're able to move. There's, there's villages out there, you know, everything from tiny estates in Pennsylvania to, you know, villages in, in uh, Oregon. Um, Weirdly enough, we don't have a lot of village thing going on in California, but uh, we do have one place at the Delta Bay. You know, it may be that you choose to move somewhere where it's legal until such time where it becomes legal in your area. It all depends on like, right. you know, which which part of the goal are you going for? Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing that that Jody talked about, Jody Gable um, last week, was that in these cities that are putting up emergency tiny houses, tiny house villages for, for veterans or for homeless or, you know, yeah. targeted at these certain groups, once they do that, they can't reasonably say no other tiny house villages. Absolutely. So um, it'll be interesting to watch that kind of develop or as it develops. And, and you'll be seeing this more. So once Dan's worked on the like ADU backyard, all that stuff, now he's working on tiny home zones because we can go into a whole conversation about redlining led to, you know, in the Jim Crow eras, redlining was absolutely a way to segregate people and you know, people are in poverty, people of color, all those things. And those practices, you know, are still living through the zoning is what we call it now. Redlining practices are no longer being done, but they were done. And so we've, you know, we're undoing, we're, we're, re we're transforming the whole way, you know, this idea of build bigger, big, 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 you know, I grew up, my whole life was all about consumer, you know, buy a big home, get a big job, big, 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 move out in the suburbs, you name it. I mean, I was, I watched 
you know, all kinds of uh, TV and saw the ads. And my mom's voice of like, save your money was much smaller than go buy and shop. And, and so we are in a major transformation. You know, we're in, I've heard the great pause, the great turning, the great time of tiny. <laughs> I like it. The great, the great turning of tiny. Yes. The great turning of tiny. Well, you've been so generous with your time. I want to ask you one more question, which is to ask, I want to ask you to finish the sentence. I want to live in a tiny home because dot, 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 and answer it. Don't answer it for, for the way you would have answered it before you lived tiny. But now that you're living tiny, what's, what's your answer and has it changed? It's still the same. Home ownership. Okay. Straight up home ownership, which covers like financial and I would say home ownership simplification and, and, you know, living lighter on the planet and travel, you know, the list goes on, but yes, all those. Awesome. Where can people find you? Absolutely. Experience tinyhomes.org on the net and then on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at experience tiny homes. Awesome. And I'll link to all of those from the show notes episode page for this episode. Lindsay Wood. Great. And we'll be sharing more links about all that's going on with COVID. There's links to like what's happening in your state because yep. everyone all over the country dealing with different realities. And my blessings go out to anyone that is in a situation that is, you know, dealing with housing insecurity, paying more than 30% of your income on housing. We have got to make a change together and um, your voice is needed. Awesome. Well, Lindsay Wood, actually, I mean, you just said something I was about to say bye, but you know, when you say your voice is needed, you know, what can people do? I think share their story. You know, it was really sad when my friend Al, you know, shared with me, like what's going on for him. There's a lot of shame to like having this happen. Like, I'm sorry, but no one expected a global pandemic. We have never prepared, oh, excuse me, some, some administrations prepared for it. Um, and so we, and we, we did not have leadership for the last four years and the last year of what an atrocious you know, experience of having so many of our fellow citizens and people die right here on this soil. And that is tough. And I think anyone telling their story, you're not alone. There's millions of people like you. And this is a game changer for the way this is, this is, is a disruptor. Yeah. And it's not about you being ashamed, you, you know, reaching out and sharing, like share on the tiny home support squad, share on Ethan's channel, He'll share your channel. And just so we can know who you are um, so we can help. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's great advice. Lindsay Wood, thank you so much for being a guest on the show again. Yeah. And I'll host visiting sessions with people. We'll do all that stuff. I host challenges. There's a lot of, you know, free ways to like get support. And then there's ways where like, okay, at some point you're going to need to buy the home or build it. And, and that is where, you know, some financial investment has to happen. Yes. Because it's housing after all. So, but you know, it's amazing. Tiny homes can last a long time. You put a metal roof on them. I, I strongly su support that. <laughs> yes. For many reasons. <laughs> and build them well and follow Ethan and all that he's doing to help people DIY their own tiny homes. Thank you so much to Lindsay Wood for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes at thetinyhouse.net slash 150. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 150. Also, thank you so much to our sponsor this week, Precision Temp. Don't forget to check them out at precisiontemp.com and use the code THLP for $100 off your order and free shipping. Well, that's all for this week. 
I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.